Good morning, Conduit. Pastor Cameron has given me the great privilege and opportunity to be able to share the word with you this morning, and I am deeply appreciative for that opportunity, Pastor Cameron. We have been in a series here at Conduit for the last several weeks on the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis, and we're going to continue there today. Next week, we'll be finishing this series. I want to encourage you to be there. We're going to have some incredible storytelling from one of our own up here on the stage. And if you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, I want to go ahead and give you a brief synopsis this morning of what we've been looking at so that you're right at pace with us. So we have been examining the life of Joseph and how his life relates to our own lives, to our own suffering, to our situations of hurt, of betrayal, or sometimes even of waiting, and how Joseph's lived experience in the book of Genesis and how God responded to and led him can teach us now in 2019 and in 2020 as we lean into the new year to come. So here's the synopsis. Joseph is one of 12 sons. He is his father's favorite child, and he was given the gift of dreams by God. And he was kind of arrogant and punk-like with that gift, just like every other 17-year-old boy I know who's really good at anything. Just kidding, just kidding, yeah, okay. All right. Um, And his brothers schemed up a plot to betray him because of his arrogance and to get rid of him. Specifically, what they did is they threw him in a cistern, and then they sold him as a slave to some Egyptians. Long story short, Joseph actually does well in slavery. He's sold to a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar promotes him, and he treats him really, really well until yet another incident of undeserved trauma comes Joseph's way. And when he resists the temptation to sleep with his master's wife, he gets punished, falsely accused, and thrown into jail. And he's in jail for a good while. And the whole time that he's in jail, Pastor Cameron preached an excellent service about that waiting sermon, about that waiting period and his faithfulness and his humility while he was there and how he used this extraordinary gift of dreams that God had given him to serve all the people around him while he was in jail to his his fellow cellmates and to the guards. And then this very interesting intersection comes in time when Pharaoh, the highest authority of all of the land of Egypt, begins having dreams that relate directly to the future governance of the kingdom of Egypt. And he can find no one to interpret them. And so lo and behold, after so many years of Joseph's faithfulness and good stewardship of his dream, The opportunity comes knocking for him to use that gift of dreams to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and he does so correctly. And in response to his his aptitude with his dream discernment, Pharaoh makes him the owner, the primary authority over all of Egypt to prepare the nation for seven years of famine that will come after seven years of abundance. And then the famine comes. Joseph is the supreme authority. Outside of Pharaoh, he holds all the authority. And so when the famine comes, 
and it hits Egypt and the surrounding nations so hard that the people groups from all over Middle East and North Africa, they begin to come to Joseph to buy food or to beg for food that he had wisely stored away during years of abundance. And then as fate or a sovereignty would have it, one day, in walks Joseph's brothers to ask for some food. That is exactly where we were in the story of Joseph's life in the book of Genesis last week. So if you didn't get the chance to be here last week, Pastor Cameron led us through Joseph's initial interactions with his brothers after years and years and years since their betrayal and the hurt that they had caused him. And what we learned from Pastor Cameron last week is that Joseph's initial interactions with his brothers, despite the Bible story that we've all been told as children growing up in Sunday school, his initial interactions with his brothers were actually really ungracious. First, he accused them of being spies. Then, he held one of them as hostage. Then, he played a trick on them and accused them of theft all while keeping his identity a secret. And finally, he threatened to make them suffer the loss of another brother. So here's what we learned from chapters 41 to 44 of the book of Genesis last week as outlined by Pastor Cameron. And I'm going to reshare these bullet points that he shared with us to the screen right now. Because if you didn't get the chance to be here last weekend, I want to make sure that you get the chance to jot down these notes right now because they're pretty fantastic. The first is this. Time does not heal all wounds. Sometimes time does nothing but bring increased infection. Two, outer success never heals inner hurt. The best it can do is temporarily conceal it. And three, when we refuse to work through the things and the people that hurt us, those wounds do not get better. And this is what happened to Joseph. This is what we learned about last week, that he was in this place where toxicity had been stored away in his heart for years and years and years, and all of a sudden when his brothers walk into the palace, it begins to bubble over as Joseph accuses them of theft, plays tricks on them, and then threatens to take away their most beloved brother. Despite decades of following God earnestly, and of stewarding well the gift of dreams that God had given him, and even the promotion that Pharaoh had given him to be the supreme authority over all the land, Joseph, many decades later, was still reeling from the hurt and betrayal of his brothers. There's a toxicity that had been eating away at his heart, and it bubbled over as he reunited with them. His hurt manifested into anger that sought vengeance and sought harm. So the moment comes when Joseph must make a critical decision of what to do with all of this toxicity and anger and hurt. He has to decide whether he's going to go through with the unjust punishment of enslaving his little brother Benjamin to make all of his other brothers suffer, or alternatively, if he will choose a new, different way forward. And that's where the scripture that we're going to be in today picks up the story. 
So I recently heard this fable, and for those of you that are in my open house, you heard this as well on a podcast that we listened to from a guy named Steve Carter. And the fable says this, when you're halfway across the river, you're going to have to either swim all the way back or just finish swimming across to the other side. Either way, it's going to take significant effort. I'll read that one more time. When you're halfway across the river, you're going to have to either swim all the way back or just finish swimming across to the other side. Either way, it's going to take significant effort. The interesting thing, and what I want to believe that Joseph, in the scripture we're going to look at here in just a few minutes, is learning in his critical moment of decision, is that it takes just as much energy, and sometimes more so, to stay bitter as it does to walk the path of forgiveness. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45 with me to learn how Joseph responds in a critical moment of decision. Genesis chapter 45. We're going to see whether he decides to invest his energy in swimming backwards towards the initial side of the river where deceit and enmity ruled, or whether he decides to swim to the other side where a new creative future can be imagined. We're going to read starting at verse 1 in chapter 45 of the book of Genesis. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly." Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. 
When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the very best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Craig Rochelle, the pastor of Life Church and the creator of the YouVersion Bible app that perhaps some of you were using right now to read this scripture, posted a quote on his social media this past week that says, Forgiveness doesn't change what happened in the past, but it can change what happens in the future. You see, Joseph knew that unforgiveness would bring more of the same kind of pattern of the past. So he opted instead for a different future, one that was rooted not in the enmity or the deceit or the hurt or the betrayal of the past, but instead rooted in the creative imagination of God, and he desired it more so Then he desired to hold on to his own bitterness. He desired to join God in creating a different future for his family. You've probably all heard the term evangelist before. And maybe, possibly, that word has a yucky connotation in your mind when you hear it. Because to be truthful, not all evangelism that's been done in the last couple of centuries in the name of Christ has been all that pretty or ethical. But the term evangelist in its barest form actually means this, herald of good news. And that's a pretty beautiful definition. And what it meant back in the Roman Greco world, I also learned this interesting er, recently and found it to be very interesting, is it actually was this political military term. So whenever there were two warring nations, or let's say we could even say towns, two warring towns that had gone out to a battle, there would be someone assigned in that battlefield as an evangelist. And once a winning side won and had conquered the battle, that evangelist role was to run back to the town or to the kingdom or to the nation and to go right to the center of the town, raise a flag, and announce the good news that the victory had been won. So evangelism is a New Testament word. It comes out of that Roman Greco time period. And yet even so, here in the Old Testament, we have a great example of an evangelist, if you strip it back down to that bare base definition, someone who brings good news in the life of Joseph. Because you see, Joseph didn't just extend his forgiveness to his brothers. He also shared the good news with them. He told them it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. He sent me ahead of you for a great deliverance for you and for all the people from this famine. When I was in college, um, my first year of college, I went to North Park University, a Christian liberal arts school in the city of Chicago. And my first year, I stayed in this kind of iconic, really tall, circular building. If there's any North Park graduates in here, sometimes we have some in the city of Jamestown. It's this beautiful building called Anderson Hall. And within a few weeks of my first year of college, our RD, our resident director, invited all of the girls in our dorm building to a movie night up on the top of our building. 
And so I was really excited to go, and we went, and it was beautiful. Um, You could see for so far, and they had just strung some white sheets up on the top of the building, and we began to watch a movie that I had never seen before. And the movie was called End of the Spear. Is anyone here familiar with that movie or seen it? Okay, good handful. So End of the Spear, for those of you who haven't seen it, is a movie that was made in 2005, if I'm dating myself a little bit, about the real-life story of Operation Auka. Operation Auka was a plan, a strategy, so to speak, of five American Christian missionaries and their families to evangelize, again, strip it back to that original meeting, to bring good news to the Wadani people of the tropical rainforest of eastern Ecuador. Now, the Wadani people were a people that were known for their aggressiveness and their violence. They were a tribe that was indigenous and totally unreached by the modern world. Their culture was so violent that not even the government of Ecuador had been able to reach the Wadani. And their culture was so, so, so violent at the time that this real-life incident happened that the movie is based on, that there was no third generation of people in their tribe, meaning there were no grandparents, because the adults would never make it that far into their adulthood to become grandparents. So five American Christian missionaries decided to try to befriend them after locating them on a plane and to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, convinced that it would forever change the tribe and their hope for a peaceful future and for a third generation to finally exist. So persuaded were these missionaries that they went unarmed on drops to the tribe they would go in on a plane. The tribe lived in a place that was unreachable by vehicle, and so they drive in on their plane, and they would drop gifts with a rope. The wives and the children of the missionaries were worried about their lack of weaponry and their their ability to defend themselves against attack if the Wadani were to decide to attack them, and so the movie includes this one clip Spoiler alert here, however, even though I'm doing this whole spoiler alert thing, I really, really, really want to give you homework if that's a thing that I can do here, which I feel like that's a thing I can do because my preschooler gets homework, y'all, okay? And being a disciple is real work. So homework for all the disciples in the house is to watch the end of the Spear movie over the next week. But spoiler alert, here we go. Um, There is this clip in the movie. Also, by the way, free on Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, I watched it over the weekend. Free on Amazon Prime, or you can go check it out from your local library. End of the Spear. Yes. So there is this clip in the movie, End of the Spear, where the son of one of the missionaries named Nate Saint, his son, who in real life was about five years old, and in the movie they portray him as about an eight-year-old boy, says to him, Dad, if the Wadani attack, will you defend yourself? Will you use your guns? And Dad says back to him, Son, we can't shoot the Wadani. They're not ready for heaven. We are. And that same day, 
just a few hours later, on a gift drop, all five missionaries, who were all husbands and fathers, were murdered by the warriors of the Wadani tribe. Newspapers from all over the U.S. called it senseless. What were five young families doing in the Amazon rainforest, unarmed, trying to give gifts to a primitive warrior tribe? Senseless is what the headlines read. Now, some of you might be familiar with this story, not because you've watched the movie End of the Spear, but because you've read some of the incredibly rich writings of Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered that day as well. Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim, was one of the five missionaries murdered that day. And the movie portrays them as having a daughter that was around four years old, but in reality, their daughter was only 10 months old when he was murdered. And here's the really fascinating thing. The real good news piece of the story. Elizabeth Elliot did not return home to the U.S. to find safe harbor after what happened to her husband. She didn't even return to a safer part of Ecuador. Elizabeth Elliot took her 10-month-old daughter on her hip her daughter's name was Valerie, and accompanied by a sister of one of the other missionary gentlemen who were murdered, they pressed into the jungle and they went to the Wadani tribe. With her babe on her hip, Elizabeth Elliot did an unspeakably brave thing. And just like Joseph, who had been wronged unjustly, she decided that to be unforgiving would only bring more of what the past had already given them. But to choose forgiveness would bring a different future, one rooted in the creative imagination of a God who chooses to birth hope and peace and reconciliation in the most unlikely of places. So when I watched this movie, side note, Elizabeth lived there for two years with her daughter Valerie and the other missionary sister named Rachel. And during that time, the whole Wadani tribe laid down their spears and came to freedom and peace in the gospel of Jesus Christ and had their first generation of grandparents. So I watched that movie in 2006 in this big, pretty um, dorm building in the city of Chicago. And it perforated my own heart in a way that I couldn't understand. And the next morning, I went to a chapel service at our college. And when I went to the service, the preacher began to preach on the parable of the prodigal son. And I had Elizabeth Elliot in my mind. And so this time, as I reheard the story of the son who mistreated his father and family and left home and spent his inheritance in the wildest, in the worst of places and indulged in gross sin, and then who returned home groveling to receive the most glorious of welcoming and forgiveness from his father, my eyes began to well when I got to the part of the story that was about the older brother. You don't have to look this up. Just go ahead and follow along on the screen with me as I read this part of the parable of the prodigal son about the older brother. 
Now his older son was in the field, Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32 say. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and he entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And I cried as I heard this part of the story, as I was convicted of how often my own reaction is like that of the older brother, who was slow to forgive and poisoned by bitterness, instead of like the father's heart who the book of Luke says, the father's heart, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. I wept at my pride and I wept at the way that I tend to create God in my own image by thinking that he hates all the same people that I do. Father Greg Boyle, the founder and CEO of Homeboy Industries in L.A., a gang ministry, says this. God doesn't have enemies. God has children. I wept and I began to ask God to lead me, to give me the courage, to give me the space in my own heart for forgiveness and hope that I could one day, when faced with the decision, just like Joseph, in a critical moment of decision, that I would have the courage and the space in my heart for it to choose just like Elizabeth Elliot did, who when she should have chosen to flee the Wadani tribe in the Amazon, put her 10-month-old in a canoe with her and began rowing right back down the river to forgive her offenders and free herself, because y'all, she freed herself, and them for a future far greater than any of them could have ever imagined. When Steve Saint, the same little eight-year-old boy who I read, who I read lines from that movie clip a few moments ago, um, his daddy died when he was just five years old. When he was 14 years old, he and his sister Kathy decided to be baptized, and they chose a couple of Wadani to perform the baptism in the same water next to the beach where their father was killed. Steve said in an interview with CBN a few years ago in his adulthood, after choosing to live among the Wadani for many years with his own children, Steve said this, What the Wadani meant for evil, God used for good. Given the chance to rewrite the story, I would not be willing to change it. And so then the same United States media who had initially covered the murder of the missionaries and called it a senseless tragedy later 
recanted their headlines and reported on the heroic effort of reconciliation. From the day forward, from that day forward, when I began to plea with God, would you give me space in my heart for forgiveness, lest my reaction be like that of the older brother in the parable? I believe that God took that desperate plea of mine and began to use it to invite me into narratives with at-risk people who needed big forgiveness in ways far greater than I could have ever imagined. Because you see, just three years later, I would forgive my daddy for dying on me, for choosing alcohol over a future with me and my family. And just four years later, I would lead two rival gangs in a neighborhood, which at that point in 2006, I didn't even know the name of, in a small little slum on the periphery of the capital city of Tegucigalpa, to reconciliation and peacemaking over a couple soccer leagues for a more prosperous future. And just seven years later, I would have to forgive the doctors and the nurses and the medical system as a whole in Honduras when they failed me in my pregnancy and failed my daughter at her birth and in the few weeks after her care when she died at just three weeks old because of their medical negligence and the failures of their medical system. And God would challenge me not just to forgive them, but instead to radically reconcile with them and to join forces with them in a way that birthed hope in million dollars of resources and government rallying to forever change the landscape of maternal infant mortality in the country of Honduras. And the narrative hasn't stopped since then. And it likely never will. Because there are always going to be people and systems and group and heck yes, even churches who are going to fail me and who are going to fail you in critical ways that will leave gaping holes in my heart and in yours and who tempt to poison us with bitterness and with toxicity forever. And yet God will forever stand offering to us his own hand of forgiveness in our own wretchedness, inviting us to follow him in his forgiving way into imagining a future that could be different, that could be hopeful, and then to follow him into that future. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. And friends, I get that there are people out there who have wronged us or have abused us in a way that reconciliation, the rejoining of friendship and togetherness, just will not be advisable or safe this side of heaven. Listen, I got a few of those on my list as well. There are some people whom I will one day sit at the table and eat with at the banquet table in heaven, but for whom now, while my feet are still planted on this earth, that will not be possible. But oh, even when reconciliation is not possible, we must forgive. And we must do, as Pastor Cameron urged us last week, the hard work to get there. Because it is not just saying the words, I forgive you. We must do the hard work to get there, both for our own souls and for the sake of the others, lest we run our race in a way that the toxicity and bitterness in our own souls spills over 
despoil that which we care for most. Pastor Cameron shared last week Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, that say, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, and first be reconciled to your brother, and then and come and offer your gift. And he left us with this thought that I wrote down and read probably like five bajillion times in my notes this week. Jesus said that more important than the act of worship is the responsibility for relational harmony. Read that one more time. Jesus said that more important than the act of worship is the responsibility for relational harmony. Recently, we all, because I think you all, whether you were on the, whether it was on the news or on the social media, unless you were living under a rock, recently got to see an incredible example of this same principle in the life of Brant Jean, a young man only 17 years old, when his brother was murdered by an off-duty police officer by the name of Amber Geiger in the city of Dallas. Amber, upon getting off of an overtime shift, opened the wrong apartment door and shot and killed Botham Jean, who had studied to be an accountant and was sitting inside his own apartment eating ice cream when she burst in. And believing, Amber, that she was in her own apartment and that he was an intruder, she murdered him. His younger brother, Brant, had the opportunity to testify at Amber's sentencing. And again, just like Joseph, in a critical moment of decision, whether to replicate the past, the decision of the past, the pattern of the past, or to create a new future, Jean chose the path of forgiveness. I want to share the video of that moment again with you right here.
Genesis chapter 45 records Joseph as weeping over his brothers, overwhelmed by forgiveness for them. Just as Brant Jean does in this video over his brother's convicted murderer, Amber Geiger. This video clip from Amber's sentencing went viral worldwide as the social media and news and families all across the globe were stunned at this radical courage that Brant had to forgive, all in the name of a gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation. And my friends, that's the thing about our forgiveness. When we choose to do it in ways and with people and in situations that nobody would blame us for being bitter for, that nobody thinks deserve forgiveness, we witness to Jesus, <coughs> to Jesus Christ in a way that is so awe-inspiring that it stops anybody and points them to eternal hope. Hold on one second. The other day, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, sorry, I've been sick all weekend. Um, so the other day, <clears throat> I was trying to pace my kids with us where we are as a body. And so I was reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to them, specifically about the life of Joseph. Joseph, And I got to the last summary line of the Jesus Storybook Bible, which again, shameless plug, y'all should be in this with your kids. It's an absolutely fantastic resource of scripture and language that your kids can understand. Anyways, we got to this last line of the life and witness of Jesus, and it said this thing that just gripped me. It says, Joseph didn't punish his brothers. He rescued them. He brought God's special family to live safely with him in Egypt, because one day God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break, and like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father's. His brother would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good. To forgive the sins of the whole world. Because you see, the Jesus who came to us in flesh as the incarnate I am, who literally by both his humanity and his divinity stepped in for a people who was consumed in their own wickedness and stood up for all of us in all places in all times by an act of radical forgiveness at the cross of Calvary, calls his church, all of us here and now, to step in for those whose sin is obvious and for whose brokenness has caused our own wounds and to stand up for the enemy who he calls child by offering a forgiveness that the world doesn't understand but that we know because of the example of Jesus Christ is powerful to set us free both from the burden of bitterness and to a future that is far greater than we can currently imagine to a future that God is calling us to co-create with him something new in that is hope and peaceful and reconciliation based and that will draw our world our families our churches our peers our communities and oh my goodness our own children 
to replace the words, a senseless tragedy that happened to them, with a heroic work of reconciliation. Brother and sister, here today, if you would have ears, hear. My prayer is that your heart, that my own heart, would be pierced by forgiveness in such a way that we cannot keep it to ourselves and that we have to allow it to overflow to our offenders. We have an absolutely delicious meal prepared for you downstairs. But as always, I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come up here. I want to encourage you that even if your belly is rumbling and you want to hurry on down and be the first to get into the line, I want to encourage you to linger in a spirit of worship as our team leads us in one last song for just a moment longer. And to not only add the watching the movie End of the Spear to your homework list for this week, but I have one more task for you as well. I want you to identify during this last song, again, linger with me, please don't leave. Identify during this song something that you can do this week that can help you move in the direction of forgiveness and or reconciliation with someone that you consider your offender. And that's going to look really different from one person to the next. It's going to look really different for me than it does for you. But would you ask the Holy Spirit during this final worship song that our team is leading us in to give you a specific meeting that you need to call and schedule or a text that you need to send or a counseling appointment that you need to make to start working through what it would look like to even unpack this hurt so that I can get to forgiveness or a reconciliation effort that you can be part of this week to follow right now in the footsteps of Joseph and in the footsteps of Elizabeth Elliot, and in the footsteps of Nate Saint, and in the footsteps of Brant Jean, and in the footsteps of Jesus Christ himself, to forgive others generously, radically even, even though they don't deserve it, just like you have been. Also, if you're here this morning, and you don't even understand this launch pad for forgiving others because you yourself haven't experienced that gift of forgiveness yet. If you're not in a forgiving relationship with Jesus Christ and haven't been able to experience firsthand the gift of his grace and his mercy unmerited, then I want to encourage you to not leave this place today without first coming up to this altar and allowing someone to pray with you to lead you in the first steps of what it looks like to be totally set free by the gift of forgiveness. Would you please stand and pray with me? Jesus,